Uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 says this. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation. Come on, somebody say reputation. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Verse 2, Jesus says this to the church. He says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Verse 3 goes on to say, remember. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. You might want to underline, highlight, circle that. It's important to the message today. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I will come to you. Yet, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out their name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge them, that name, before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray over this word. Heavenly Father, open every ear, open every heart. Open every mind to receive of your word. Change us and challenge us today. In Jesus' name, come on, if you'll believe and receive that, say amen. Amen. So today we're continuing this series. Uh, this is week five. In fact, this is the longest series I've ever preached, but week five of this series. And it's a letter to the churches. I'll do a brief recap. Uh, if, if you haven't been here throughout the weeks, I would encourage you, go back in this series and start at week one. This is a, it's a powerful impactful series, I think, especially to where we are at as a church plant, because these are letters that were written to, very, to, to some of the very first church plants in Asia. And so the Apostle John, who at the time that this was written, he's the last remaining apostle. He's on the island of Patmos. They've tried to kill him. He couldn't be killed, so he's on the island of Patmos. Jesus shows up to him and gives him the book of Revelation, and it starts out with these three letters. We're on letter number five. This is the church of Sardis. So I just wanted to give you a little history. So Sardis is a city that sat about 40 miles Southeast of Thyatira. If you were here last week, you know we talked about the city of Thyatira. Sardis was an extremely wealthy city. It was home to the second largest synagogue of its day, measuring the size of a football field. And in that day, that was massive. The church, if I can say it this way, was comfortable. They had money. They had buildings. They had what they needed. In fact, when you read in this letter... It's missing the persecution. Did you, did you notice that? Like in every other letter that we've gone through, it talks about, you know, persecution. It talks about Antipas and one of the churches who was uh, put inside of a, a golden bull and he was literally boiled or um, he was cooked to death. We, we read in one of the churches about 
the pastor that was uh, Polycarp, who was literally burned at the stake. And while he's being burned at the stake, continued to preach. And you see all of this persecution, or you see where uh, Jesus warned about the Nicolaitans or the spirit of Jezebel that was coming against the church. And when you look at this letter, what you see that is missing is the persecution. It's missing the attacks from false teachers and false prophets. Knowing that, you would assume this. You would go, this church is in a good place. In fact, maybe if I was a part of one of the other churches, I would be like, you know what? I'm going to Sardis. They're not under attack. They don't have uh, false teachers. They don't have the Nicolaitans try to lead them astray. They don't have all this other stuff. I'm going to go be a part of the church. You might even sit back and be like, I'm a little jealous. Looks like the grass is greener over on the other side. But notice this. There's no commendation. I want to show me this slide because there's four parts to most of these letters with the exception of, well, really three doesn't have all four of them, but this one is missing the commendation. This one is missing what the church was doing well. And every week we talk about it. You've got your commendation, you've got your correction, you've got your counsel, and you've got your promise. And we've walked through each of these in each of these letters, but this one is missing the commendation. He didn't start with your works are great. You're abounding in love. What did he do? He went straight in on them. Uh, any, do we have anybody who is familiar with the Enneagram? Anybody? Any Enneagram people? One or two. All right. Uh, then two of you will get the joke. Um, so if, if you're on the Enneagram scale, this would be an Enneagram 8. Uh, the Enneagram 8 is confronts everything. They're just like, he's like, shoot with me straight. And so this is, Jesus just like, I'm just going to shoot with you straight. And there is no commendation. There is no uh, compliment sandwich in this one. Because they can take the correction. They didn't need the fluff. They just like, just get to the point. And this is what Jesus says. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation. Might underline that in your Bible. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. What's interesting to me is that outside looking in, they had everything together, right? Outside looking in, they didn't have the persecution. They didn't have the false teachers. It was a wealthy church. It was a well-to-do people. It seemed like everything was going smooth. Everything was going great. And on the outside, they had this reputation of being alive. But Jesus just cut straight in, and he says, you have a reputation of being alive. Everybody else thinks that you have it all together, but you're dead. And on the outside, they looked like they had everything together. Nice buildings, wealth, everything's going smooth, no persecution, no false teachings. Everything on the outside looks great. But their reputation was off. The reputation was wrong. He said, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You have everyone fooled. You're playing the part well, but the word on the street is just that. It's just word on the street because Jesus says, I know your heart. I know what's really going on and you are dead. Listen to this. The reason there's no persecution, listen to me. The reason there's no false teaching is because they're a dead church. There was no need for attack because they were dead. 
Satan knew that he already had won the battle. He had already won the war. He knew that he had already lulled them to sleep, that they were already an ineffective church. So if you're an ineffective church, why would there be any need for Satan to waste his time attacking the church? There is no uh, commendation because they're not doing really anything well. They're not doing what they should be doing. They are just a dead church. No need for attack because Satan says, I have you right where I want you. If you look at this, this is a church that's gotten comfortable. It's set in its ways. It's a church that has become ineffective. They aren't reaching people. They aren't preaching the gospel. They aren't seeing lives change. That's not the goal or their mission any longer. It's a church that isn't on mission any longer. And how many of you know that it can be easy to slip into that place as a believer? How many of you know that it can be really easy to go, I'm marking all of the check marks on the things to do list of Christianity. I got the bumper sticker. I've got all of the things. I, I, I go to church. I open my Bible app and I read the verse of the day every day. Every night I say, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord. And we go and we check off every little box. And maybe everybody's even looking to us as a spiritual leader. Maybe everybody's even looking to us and say, oh, if I could be like so-and-so, if I could be like so-and-so. But Jesus said, what your reputation is is actually fake and false. I'm looking at your heart. I know your deeds, and I know that you're dead. And it's easy to slip into coast mode. It's easy as a believer to become passive. It's easy as a believer to, to lose our passion. It's easy to slip away from the mission that God originally called you to. And that's what this church has done. This church has slipped into a place of comfort. It was neglecting the call and the purpose that God had put on them. Think about it in this way. I heard one commentator say it this way, that the church wasn't producing fruit. The church wasn't producing fruit. Because when you think about this, think about an actual tree, a peach tree or an apple tree, orange tree, whatever it is. You could think about this massive orchard. What do they have to do to protect these plants and this, this fruit that's growing. They go through and they spray it. Why? Because the insects want to come in. They want to attack it. The rodents want to come in and they want to uh, take the fruit. And when you're actually, when a tree is actually producing fruit, what's it going to get? It's going to get attacked. It's going to get the insects. It's going to get the bugs. It's going to get the bees that are coming in and trying to get the sweetness to take it back and, and make the like. It's going to get attacked. But if a tree doesn't have any fruit on it, it's safe. And in our lives, I think we have to look around and realize if we're not under attack, we have to do an assessment of our life and go, are we producing any fruit that is scaring the enemy? Is there anything that is coming from my life that the enemy is looking at and going, oh, no, I've got to do something to stop that? Is my life being effective and producing something that when they see it and, and taste the goodness of God through my life, that they go, I've got to have more of God? Because if it's not, then we need to look at our life and realize maybe that's the reason that we aren't under attack. Because what's interesting about this, watch this, is that this city was known for slipping into these places of comfort. And, and this is perhaps, perhaps one of the, the favorite 
like hidden nugget of this city, of all the cities, because we all kind of talked about special, you know, geographical things about the city or, or the history that, that fed into this city. Because watch this, this, this city had a, a reputation, the city, for growing comfortable. Because Sardis was this city, and I should have gotten you a picture, but it was this city that was built on an acropolis or on the top of this hill or mountain. And when you look at the ruins, you can literally see that the walls are built up around like the edge of this mountain. And this city was actually called the impregnable city because everybody believed there's no way that you can capture or take this city down. That it's these walls, and, uh, and I watched this one film crew that they even went up to film on top of this mountain, and they did this whole thing of they, they uh, followed the trek up the mountain and how difficult it was just to get to the top of it to prove the point that this city was built in a way, in a place that people thought the city was impregnable. But watch this. Tradition tells us that in 547 BT, BC that Cyrus the Great captured the city. And this is how they did it. The Persian army was camped outside of the city trying to figure out a way to get into the city. Because of the way that the city was built, it was believed that it was impossible to conquer. But one night, while one of the guards was keeping watch, listen what happened. He fell asleep. He fell asleep, and as he fell asleep, his helmet fell off from the wall and down to the ground. And so he goes out, and he escapes or, or exits through this trap door, and he takes this little passage down that was kind of this hidden passage. He grabs his helmet, and he walks back, and he goes through this trap door, and the Persian army sees it. So what does the Persian army do? They go back, and they report to King Cyrus, and they say, look, this is what we saw. This is what we've seen. I know how we get in the city. And so later on, what they would do is they would go in through this little secret trail because the guards were so relaxed they had let their guard down because we're the impregnable city. We're the city that nobody can get into. They fell into this place of comfort. The guards were sleeping. And so the army snuck in, took the lives of those uh, soldiers, dressed up in their garb, and then walked to the front, opened the gates, and they let the enemy in. And Jesus speaks to this city, knowing the history of this city, and said, you've got to wake up. That there's an enemy at the gates. There is an enemy that is real, that wants to take you out, and you're asleep, you're in your slumber, but you've got to wake up. You would think that this would only happen once in their history, but guess what? It happened again. They got so comfortable that in 214 B.C., the Romans ended up conquering the city in the exact same way. Why? Because they got so comfort, comfortable in where they were. And I wonder in our lives how many times we can get confident, comfortable, I'm good, I go to church, I do all the right things, and we can get comfortable in our life and not realizing that the enemy has lured us to sleep and made us spiritually ineffective. So what's the correction? The correction is this that Jesus gives to him. He says, I want you to wake up. I want you to wake up. Let me give you these two verses. Luke 8.52 says, meanwhile... All the people were wailing and mourning. This is an experience that Jesus had with uh, Jairus and his daughter. 
And he says, stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but she's what? She's asleep. First Thessalonians, Paul writes this. He said, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who what? They sleep in what? Death. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who has no hope. When Jesus says, you, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. The good news about death with Jesus is death is not final. That he says even in these two verses that they sleep in death. What does he mean that they sleep in death? Is that death is not final. That Jesus said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And if we ever fall into a place to where we're dead spiritually, we have a God that can breathe the breath of life back into us and bring us back to life. And that's the hope of this whole passage of Scripture is that Jesus says, it's time to wake up. If you're spiritually dead, if you're in a rut, if you're in a routine, if your spiritual life is dead, there's good news. We serve a God that can breathe the life back into your relationship. If your spiritual life is dead, if you aren't encountering God like you used to, if you aren't experiencing spiritual attack even like you used to, you may say that's a good thing, but chances are you've been lulled into a spiritual sleep and it's time to wake up. I would say it this way. You need spiritual CPR. You need an encounter with the Holy Spirit. Because if someone died tonight, here, what is the first thing that we would start doing? We would start giving them chest compressions. We would start giving them mouth to mouth and trying to get oxygen into their lungs. We would try to get breath back into their lungs. We would try to get their heart beating again. And I believe that sometimes what we need is spiritual CPR. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to just Breathe deep the power of the Holy Spirit so he can revive us and fill us with life again. Because watch this. The word for spirit in the New Testament is the word pneuma in the Greek, and it simply means breath. The word spirit is pneuma in the Greek, which means breath. So he is the holy breath. What I need when my life is spiritually dead, what do I need? I need the holy breath in me. I need God to breathe on me. I need God to breathe in me and fill me up afresh. Fill me up anew. But I can tell you this, it's not going to happen by just routinely going through the motions. It's not going to happen by just saying a little prayer before you go to bed or a little prayer when you wake up. It's not going to happen just by going through the motions, but it's going to happen in moments of desperation where you say, I've lost my joy. I've lost my passion. I've lost my peace and I've got to get it back. It happens in times in the altar and in times of prayer. And when you really open that Bible and out of a desperation, you go speak to me and bring me back to life because Satan knows if he can simply lure the church to sleep, he's made us ineffective. We can't become a dead church. Come on, somebody say amen. We can't be a church where God's presence can't be felt and experienced. And if we're going to be a Sunday experience where God's presence is felt and experienced, guess what? We have to be a Monday through Saturday people where God's presence is felt and experienced. Because we are the church. Come on. And we can't become the church of Sardis where our heart grows cold and hard and dead because there's people that are going to walk in the doors of this church every week that need the gospel and the presence of God that you have. So that's the correction. He says, wake up. What's the counsel? 
He gives them this counsel. And I love this. Because he says, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. And I believe that this is Jesus pointing them back to the Holy Spirit. Because watch this. I'm going to give you one, two, three, four, five, six, six scriptures, and there's a lot more. I just could only give you six, and you're like, only six? Look, I wanted, I wanted you to see this. I believe that Jesus was pointing them back to the, if you're dead, how do you become alive again? You need the Holy Spirit. Watch this, Acts 1, but you will what? Receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. John 20, 22, and when he said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them what? Receive the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.33, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the promise or from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit. There it is. Received and Holy Spirit hand in hand. He has poured forth this, which you both now what you see and hear. He said this in his counsel. He said, remember, therefore, what you have what received and heard. In Acts 2.23, he says, I've received it. He said, but I've poured it out and you have, you both see and hear. Acts 8, 15, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Galatians 3, 14, in order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the spirit through faith. Galatians 3, 2, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of law or what? By hearing with faith. Jesus is going, if your life is dead, if you come to a place where you're spiritually dead, there's one answer, and it's the power of the Holy Spirit. Because even when Jesus gave them the promise of the Holy Spirit, he said, I'm going to send one, and you will be endured with, endued with power from on high. God was pointing them back to the Holy Spirit. And this is what's cool about this whole letter when you begin to see all of it come together. Watch this, because he's pointing them back to the Holy Spirit, even in a salutation. I talked a little bit about like the special, there's just something special in every salutation that he gave. But watch this, because this is even something that may make you scratch your head when you read this. Because it says, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits. Did anybody catch that? In the, in the intro, when we were at, he who holds us, you're like, the seven spirits of, I thought we serve one God, seven spirits of, so you may be a little confused when you read stuff like this, but watch this, it all points why, because there's these seven attributes of the Holy Spirit. And it's again, in the intro, he goes, I'm the seven spirits of God. He's pointing them back where? To the Holy Spirit. So where do we find these seven spirits? I'm glad you asked. Thank you. Isaiah chapter 11 says this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, this is talking about Jesus, the stump, Jesse. David came from Jesse. So there's this promise of the royal line that Jesus would come through David. It's the Davidic covenant. And so This is what it's making this reference to, that Jesse was David's father. And so he's going out of this stump that a a branch is going to come out. And this is what it says. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, being Jesus. You with me? If you're with me, say, I'm with you. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom 
and understanding, a spirit of counsel, of might, a spirit of knowledge, and a fear of the Lord. So you go, okay. So we got seven things here in this verse. It says the spirit of the Lord is going to come on him. So I want to show you each of these things. I'm going to get through this really quick because I, I just the, the punch is coming. Are you ready for the punch? Brace for the punch. The holy, it's, it's coming, all right? So this is it. I want to show you these seven spirits elsewhere in Scripture so you know I'm not just going. I, just, I don't ever want you to be like, he's making this stuff up. He found a verse to support. No, watch. I want, you to sh- I want you to see all this. And again, for each of these, I could have listed a bunch more, but because of time's sake, I'm just going to give you this. Spirit of the Lord. What does the Spirit of the Lord represent? It represents a spirit of victory, liberty, and boldness. Watch 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Spirit... Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom, liberty. So there's a spirit of victory, liberty, and freedom. This is the Spirit of the Lord, a spirit of victory, wisdom. 1 Corinthians 2.12, now we have received now the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. There's things that are given to us by God That's wisdom. The spirit points us back to wisdom. Understanding. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide us into what? All truth. He's the one that gives us understanding. Counsel. John 14, 26 says this. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is our counselor. He gives us good counsel. Might. Zechariah 4, 6. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but what? By my spirit. There's a spirit of might that comes from the Holy Spirit. Uh, for 2 Peter 1.21, for the spirit of knowledge, it says this, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the spirit. Get a spirit of knowledge of things to come. And then the fear of the Lord, Isaiah 33.6 And he will be the stability of your time, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. Watch this. And the fear of the Lord is whose truth? His truth. The Spirit's truth. The seven spirits. And in the intro, in the end, what does he say? What is the fix to the problem? It's the Holy Spirit. But I want to just point out one thing in Isaiah Because he said, church, you've got a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now watch in Isaiah. It says that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. A stump has a reputation of being what? Dead. When you look at a stump, you assume the tree is dead. It is no more. That's the end of its life. Things are over. No chance that anything is ever going to grow out of that. In fact, if you go back and you look, the stump of Jesse had actually been dead for, 700, uh, for 722 years. There had been no king since 722 B.C. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus, the one that was promised, Jesus comes out of a stump. So it has a reputation of being dead, but God has the reputation of taking dead things and bringing them back to life. And so there was this stump that has the reputation for being dead, but we serve a God that takes and changes the reputation of things. He specializes in 
and resurrection. He specializes in reputation change. Because before the cross was known as an instrument of condemnation, now it's known as an instrument of redemption. The grave was known as a place of death, but Jesus turned it into a source of life. Jesus is into changing reputations. Because Jesus took Saul with a reputation for murdering and turned him into Paul, the preacher and apostle. Jesus took Simon, a rough cussing rebel of a fisherman and turned him into the rock that the church was built on. Jesus is in the business of changing reputation and he does it through the power of the Holy Spirit. We serve a God that says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And I'm thankful that if I walk into church dead, I can walk out alive just in an instant. That all I need to do is just breathe in the Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask that the band comes back, and I'm going to close with this. The promise. So what does he say? He comes back after all this. He said, look, he didn't really give them the commendation, but he said, look, this is what you got. You've got a reputation of being alive, but you're dead, and I know it. And then he gives them the promise. He gives them the the correction, the, the way to fix it, and then he gives them this promise. He says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. And I will never blot out their name, the name of that person, from the book of life, but I will acknowledge the name before my Father and his angels. There's two things I want you to see here. There's two promises. And remember, the promise is always eternal. The promise is not now. It's not like we're all going to dress up in togas and come to church, all right, and be like, yes, Jesus gave me this white. That's not, that's not what we're going to do, right? It's not like we have a book that we write your name down in, and we're like, we're never erasing this. That's This is an eternal promise. But remember, Jesus is speaking to a church that is engulfed in Roman culture. A church that is ruled by, in a land ruled by the Roman government. So Jesus begins to speak to the church and to the Romans to the people in this land. And he speaks very specifically in a way that they'll understand it. And in today's culture and in today's society, we look at this and we may think it means something else. But when we'll take the history and the culture of the day that he was writing to and speaking to, this whole passage of Scripture right here in verse, verses 4 through 5 begins to come alive. Because... One commentator said it this way, that the robes of white refers to the day of Roman triumph. So what would happen is if there was a great feat that happened or a soldier had a a great victory, went out, slayed a bunch of soldiers, they would come home and when he would come home from war, they would hold a parade, they would hold a festival, they would hold a party. And they would take this soldier and he would put on 
a white toga. How many of you have seen, you've seen the white togas? If you've been to a toga party, you don't have to admit it right now, okay? But they would put on these white togas, and it was a, a symbol of honor that they had done something amazing, that they had gone to battle, and they had conquered, and they had triumphed. And they would take them in this processional in the streets that would then lead up to the magistrate's house. And they would have this party. And in the party, they would acknowledge the victor and they would call out his name. And you're like, oh, that's cool. He earned that. He went to war. He fought. He earned that. But here's the cool thing. That soldier, that person that was going to be honored, could pick whoever they wanted to come alongside of them, somebody that didn't do anything, they didn't go to war, they didn't fight the battle, they didn't do anything to deserve to be honored, and they would get the same honor as that soldier. And they would put on a robe of white, a, a toga, and they would go through the city in the same processional as the victor. And they would go into the same feast as the victor and sit at the same table as the victor. And when the victor's name was called out, so were the other people's names called out. And Jesus was saying in this moment, if you'll just stay true to the end, even though you didn't do anything to deserve it, even though you're not worthy, even though your, your clothes were as this and I made them white as snow because of what I did on the cross, your name will be called before my father. And it's this amazing picture pointing everything back to a picture of grace that one day will be forgiven of everything, not because of anything that I did, but because God loved us so much in his grace, I'm going to get to stand with him and have my name called before his father, before our father in heaven. And we're going to wear robes of white. I want you to stand on your feet with me. And then he says this last thing. He says, you're going to be in robes of white. But then he also says, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. In Roman culture, they had this book that was, was like a, a, a civic role or registry of its citizens. And in it, the record was entered the name of every child born in that, in that city. But if one of the citizens was proved guilty of treachery or disloyalty or anything bringing shame on the city, he was subjected to public dishonor by expunging his name from the registry. Are y'all getting this? The name was in any case normally obliterated like as death. He was deemed no longer worthy to be regarded as a citizen of the city. And if on the other hand, a city had performed some or a citizen had performed some outstanding exploit deserving a special distinction, honor was bestowed on him and either the recording of the deed in the city roll or scroll by his name being encircled in gold or overlaid in gold. And so Jesus says to this church, that would have clearly understood 
what he's saying. Hey, listen. This is what grace looks like. You live in a society where if you do something wrong, your name is blotted out of the book of life, out of your role, out of you're not counted as a citizen. But Jesus comes and says, if you just confess my name and accept me, what's going to happen is that I'm going to accept you as a citizen of heaven, and there's nothing that you can do to erase that name. And it's this perfect picture of grace that God goes, I've got you. If you'll just wake up in eternity with me, I'll never blot your name out of my book, but you'll spend eternity with me living under my grace and my goodness. But it only happens if we'll wake up. 